0: And now the Federal Drive with Tom
1: Temin. Hello, and thanks for joining us on this Monday, June twenty first, twenty twenty one, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian. Our digital editors, Amelia Brust and David Thornton. Coming up in this hour of the Federal Drive, the Energy Department pursues cleaner and more efficient biofuel. Plus, a procurement strategy known as category management might be stifling small business contractors. Those stories much more ahead during this hour of The Federal Drive. But first, the Homeland Security Department is on a multi-year mission to improve employee engagement scores. After years of being at the bottom of the pack, DHS improved overall engagement scores by four points, On that 2020 Federal Employee Viewpoint survey, leaders and supervisors each improved their scores by five points. For how they did that, Federal News Network's Nicola Grisco spoke with DHS Chief Human Capital Officer Angie Bailey.
0: I was not surprised. Actually, I really thought it was a really good indication of where some of our pulse surveys had let us know that we were headed. So having the actual scores didn't actually surprise us. So, I I mean, I would say that we were, you know, really pleased with the fact that we've been steadily improving since 2015 and that last year, despite everything that was going on, you know, from COVID to the, the unrest that we had, just, you know, everything, right? And so one would have thought that maybe it would have taken a bit more of a toll on our folks than we maybe would have anticipated, but I think what the scores kind of proved out instead is for us, at least, is that all the effort that we really put into making sure that we stayed connected with our employees, making sure that we provided them to the best of our ability, as much protective equipment that we could, that we maximized telework where we could. I think we tried to do all the right things, and our scores seem to be reflective of the fact that our employees appreciated that.
2: Did you change your approach at all going into 2020? I mean, acknowledge that the pandemic and everything associated with the last year, you obviously had to make some changes in how you communicated and and thought about keeping employees engaged. But overall, did your approach change between, you know, last year and how you were maybe thinking about this previously?
0: Yeah, I think that probably the biggest change was how connected we got to the employees in a very personal way. So up until like 2020, just as an example, I would have never, as the Chico written to you know all two hundred and fifty thousand employees. I would have you know used through the chain of command gone to the component leadership and then it would have gone down through their chains of command, whereas what I was able to do is like reach out to them directly and be able to send email messages to them that I would say were not really traditional in a way where we talked about things like where I was able to give my personal experience and they were able to write back to me. So like when I would reach out to them over hundreds of employees would write back to me with every email message that I sent to them and then I would respond to them individually each and every time. And so it built this rapport and this connection to them that I've never seen before, especially on that kind of level and and that kind of span, if you will. And so, yeah, that's probably what was the most different about this is this very one-on-one personal connection. And even to this day, just yesterday, a young lady wrote to me about a personal issue. And, you know, this is someone who works in ICE, ERO, and she's located out in the fields. She's not here in D.C. I wouldn't know her if I ever saw her, but there just became this connection, real connection with our employees that I think sometimes we forget that all of this employee engagement, it's not complicated or complex. Sometimes it's just having a one-on-one connection with people and letting them know that you care and that you're listening to them.
2: Not asking you to share specifics or anything, but just generally speaking, I mean, what were employees telling you in all of those emails?
0: What they were telling me is that just like all of us, right? There's things that they were struggling with. I mean, some of them had spouses that were high risk. Some of them had family members that they had lost to COVID. Some of them were very, very scared, but others were like also out doing really good things. They were like baking cookies for their neighbors or taking someone's kids to their ball games or, you know, going to the grocery store for an elderly neighbor who might've been afraid to go out. So it became like a real example of the fact that at the end of the day, DHS employees are also people too, right? They're humans with real, with real experiences, with real lives, with real concerns, with real successes and joys and failures and tears and everything else that any other American citizen is facing at the same time. And so I think what you will find is that any story that you were hearing, Nicole, you know, whether it was across your own family and friends or community is the same stories that we were hearing within our own DHS workforce.
2: Right. I was particularly interested in some of the improvements on the leadership scores with the, the 2020 Febs. What might you attribute that to? Is it more just of what you've been talking about, the direct communication that you and I assume other senior leaders at DHS had? Or is there something else you think that the leadership team did to perhaps engage the workforce a little more?
0: This really began under whenever our secretary was the deputy secretary of DHS, and he really started this effort and put a focus in on the listening sessions and the focus groups and the leadership just getting far more involved and sitting down with employees and talking to them rather than having an approach that's like you know a bunch of glossy brochures and ice cream socials kind of thing. And so we carried that through for the last five, six years. We've been really carrying through this very hands-on leadership approach we've been taking an approach to leadership as well to like introduce them to the neuroscience of leadership why do we have the biases that we have how does our brain work how do you get your heart and your head in coherence so that you know whenever you're walking up and you see a conflict and stuff that that you slow yourself down and you actually like start to listen instead of ramping yourself up to you know involved in any conflict that might be going on so we've taken this really holistic approach for our employees, our leadership has. And so I do want to say that even though I was sending messages out, I know our secretary was also sending, doing videos. Our depth sec at the time did a video from the, actually from the basement of his house, you know, to say that, look, I can still even be this high of a level and still be able to engage and get my work done and stuff. So we just, all of the non-traditional things that we tried out. And if things didn't work out, well, then we just kind of, you know, scrapped it and said, okay, people aren't really resonating with that as much. The other thing that that we did from a leadership perspective is we really started talking also about not just the employees, but their families. How do we take care of their families? Because so many of our workforce, I think it's like 63% of our workforce is frontline and has to work or, you know, had to be out on the front lines because you cannot, screen passengers to get on a plane from the comfort of your home. You cannot protect the president from your lake house. You cannot, you know, you cannot chase, down the, chase down the drug cartel while sitting on your back porch kind of thing. And so we tried to be really careful to think through, okay, how do we make their lives better too, not just for them, but for their families? What are some of the resources that we could deliver for the families? We even created a children's page on our employee resource page. And one of the other things we're doing is creating onboarding that onboards not just the employees, but their families as well. You know, we're beginning to do that. So the message that I'm really trying to send is that this whole concept is like people come to work and then they go home. It's like, but what we've really found is that whatever goes on at home goes on at work. And whatever goes on at work goes on at home. So how do we try to help and make both of those environments you know, as meaningful as we possibly can for people so that as they transfer back and forth between these different lives that they have, that somehow we're able to create some kind of continuity, security, safety of the like, again, just to kind of really make their lives better. And that's what I think you see as a result of these leadership scores. So we have wonderful leadership development programs. Absolutely, they're, they're fantastic. They get incredibly high reviews, and our leadership goes to those. But I think what we learned in 2020 is that it's more than just a leadership development course. It's about really thinking through what are the needs of the employees and how do we take care of that? An example is emergency backup daycare the emergency backup care was a lifesaver for our employees because you may be teleworking, but if you have three little kids at home that are all trying to get on to a computer to do schoolwork and you're trying to do a conference call and the daycares are shut down and the schools were shut down, their ability to call somebody to come in under emergency, you know, backup daycare to come in and just sit with their children and help them log on to Zoom so that they can, you know, attend their third grade class and then mom can attend her conference call was a hugely helpful thing for our employees. And again, that's what I think the employees kind of recognized and what you see in our scores.
2: You mentioned onboarding the employee and family. Can you tell me more about that? How how does that work or how will that work?
0: Yeah, so how it'll work is... Of course, the employee will come in or, you know, we'll do it virtually, but we're creating packets of information and literally having family sessions. And we want to make sure that not just the partner, spouses included, but also the children so that we can have conversations with them about the realities of what the job is that their, their family member has signed up for so that they can kind of feel like they're a part of it instead of, you know, daddy just goes off and I don't really know why he always misses my birthday you know every year he's missed my birthday because he's off doing something but instead what we're saying is no no let's let's include the children let's help them understand the job that you have the importance of the job that you have let's also try to figure out a way to arrange your schedule and to do things so that you stop missing your child's birthday party because that's important, not just to the child, but to, you know, the actually to the employee's well-being as well. And then they perform better whenever they're not so worried about the fact that I'm on the job and I've missed my child's birthday party. So part of the onboarding is to really help the family understand just as much as the employee as to what they've quote-unquote signed up for. We've also introduced things like, it's called MPEAK training, but basically some people tease me and say, oh, so now, you know, DHS offers marriage counseling. And I'm always like, well, yeah, kind of, sort of, because here's the thing, like, if they're, if they have a happy home life, honestly, they're going to be happier at work and vice versa. If they have a happier work life, they're going to be happier at home. And so we're, you know, we really are trying to introduce things like mindfulness training. We introduced that down at Fletsy as our folks were quarantining and they couldn't get into their training classes. You know we introduced them to the concept of meditation and how to how to breathe properly, how to you know kind of become one with their their heart and their mind and stuff and so we're really trying our best to give them and deliver to them programs that just honestly help enhance their life, and then we believe that that in and of itself will then help enhance how well they do the mission.
2: I probably have to ask you about the telework component of this last year's mm-hmm. survey. What do you see from those results? And I acknowledge that a good chunk of your workforce cannot telework, but you know it does seem that for those that could, they did. What do you see from those results? And where do you think those results might take you in the next year or so here?
0: Our results are pretty typical, honestly, of what I think you'll see across the nation, whether it was private or public and so yes those employees that that could um did i will tell you that i think what some employees struggled with i heard this from in fact one of our fema folks is that they needed to tell the work and they understood that but they started feeling disconnected from their colleagues who couldn't and so there was a little bit of guilt I think, for some of our folks and, you know, over the fact that that they knew that so many of their colleagues didn't have the ability to telework. And so I think that there was a pulling together of how can we help the frontline as best that we can, even though we're, you know, we're teleworking. So that was one thing. I do think that after people started to settle in, there was a little bit of isolation and loneliness and stuff, but Then we started to settle in and we, you know, like our IT, for the most part, it works extremely well. And so we got really good at the virtual meetings and connecting with each other and, you know, even virtual happy hours or, you know, different things to just make sure that everybody, again, felt connected while we were teleworking. And so I think really where we're headed and, you know, we've held many focus groups with our employees. We've listened to them. We've had town halls. And I think what you're going to find is a hybrid approach. I'm not sure that we'll go back to the days where, you know, people can only telework one day a week. I think instead it'll be very ad hoc or very much, when I say hybrid, you know, just this combination of, you know, sometimes I'm in the office, sometimes I'm not in the office, but at any time you can connect with me and, you know, you can find me and and I'm able to get my, my job done. That's what I really think. And so we're rethinking our buildings. We're rethinking, you know, do we put in more conference room space so that when we do come in to collaborate or we do come in to celebrate, because, you know, those are important reasons really to kind of get together, or we come in to create things like the brainstorm because that's healthy and helpful for us to do, how do we create an environment in the office in which that's conducive to that kind of new setup or new getup, if you will? And so a lot of thought is now going into, into that, right? It's, the whole issue of telework is really not that hard or complicated. Neither is remote work. I mean, you either can or you, or you can't. But I think the more important question for us has become when we are in the office, how do we create spaces in which we can collaborate and celebrate in ways that make sense And then also, how do we, in those same spaces, how do we make sure that those that are still out, like maybe at their home or wherever, how do we make sure that they're included? Because back in the day, if you you guys maybe experienced this, but if you were on a conference call with folks, look, I'm guilty of it myself. You'd be on a conference call with folks, everybody's sitting in the room, and you totally forget that somebody's on the phone. And like, you don't even ask them their thoughts, their opinions, or anything, you just click, and would hang up after, you know, after the meeting was over. And so now, at least with Teams and Zoom and WebEx and all of this, you see a person, for the most part. You can tell whether or not they're still engaged. You remember to call on them, those kinds of things. And so we just want to make sure that our office space and our work environments are such that, that they're set up in such a way that we can really work efficiently in this very hybrid environment. That's what I think will be the difference.
2: Sure. How are you thinking about telework, remote work from a recruitment retention standpoint? I mean, are you hiring all virtual or only virtual employees at this point or how does that work?
0: Again, I think it, right now it's it's kind of like a, a hybrid approach. Everybody's really sitting down and saying, hey, where could this job be done? And do I need to really hire it in, in the D.C. area? Could I actually hire somebody in Kansas City and get this job done? It might be a lower cost of living, and then I have to trade that off because you know when I bring them into the office, I'll actually need to pay for that travel. So I think a lot of questions are going through people's mind of, does the work really need to be done in a particular office? Do we all need to be together? And then they're going out with their job announcements. A lot of the job announcements will say, you know, location to be determined or working schedule to be determined. And what that really means is that's going to be a negotiation, you know, between the potential employee and us over where do they want to live? What schedule do they want to work? And how best can we make that work for everybody? So, that's what I think you're going to find is more like almost where it's going to read negotiable. You know how salaries used to read? Well, they do for the private sector. Negotiable. I think you're going to find that for like where you work and, and the hours that you work, the schedules that you work. I think it's going to be a more negotiable kind of environment because here's the bottom line. If we aren't and that's what people want, that's where people will go, right? So every leader needs to understand that, that this little ship has sailed, And if you want to be competitive with other agencies or the private sector, you're going to have to rethink where work needs to be done and how work needs to be done.
2: As far as the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey, the results and all of that, or just in general your plans to engage the workforce, what's next? Is it more of the same given that we're still kind of in this environment where people are working remotely or... How are you thinking about all of that?
0: Yeah, so one of the things that we're doing is we're, of course, working with um, our components because many of them have a lot of successful initiatives already underway, and others are kicking off some new programs and projects. So, for example, I know TSA is really focusing in on providing, like, transparent career progression and improving the overall compensation for the TSA officers. USCIS, they're continuing to promote like their state-of-the-art virtual learning platform across USCIS so that they can provide more robust, accessible development opportunities in this really increasingly virtual work environment. And they're also increasing the frequency of like their career development month to twice per year to reinforce the importance of career development and promote relevant resources. And then Coast Guard, they're another one. Coast Guard is implementing a diversity and inclusion education and awareness program. And it's really going to consist of like over 100 of the Coast Guard diversity and inclusion change agents. And those will be like military, civilian, and auxiliary. And they're going to embed those inclusive behaviors like fairness, openness, communication, empowerment, support. All of those things that, that we talk about, they want to figure out a way to really infuse that throughout all of Coast Guard and then FEMA is developing an employee engagement toolkit for their managers and supervisors. Those are just a few examples of some of the things that we've got underway. The one thing that we've really learned is that each component is different. Their missions are different. How they operate is different. And so while we, we provide things overarching from a department-wide standpoint, I always want to just really be really cognizant of the fact that these components They have their own culture, right? They have their own things that they want to work on. And even within a component are components. And so, you know, a lot of this stuff is really at the local level. And I would say, again, also from a department level, one of the things I'm extremely focused in on doing is, you know, I talked about the whole person concept, but I'm working really hard to draw the thread through everything that we're doing for employee engagement and looking at it instead of, how are we delivering things from, through our employee and family readiness efforts, and then how does that translate and transfer and incorporate into what we're doing for inclusive diversity? And how does that incorporate into what we're doing with leadership development? And then how does that, you know, incorporate into how, what we're doing for employee engagement? So we spend a, a tremendous amount of time talking about how we draw the thread through all of those things instead of seeing everything in a stovepipe kind of setup because. I will say this, you're not going to feel inclusive or included in an environment if your child care needs aren't taken care of. Our leadership, and in order for them to be as effective as they possibly can, they need to understand some of the neuroscience that goes into why people think the way they do, right? Or how do you determine what somebody's needs are? How do you meet somebody where their needs are today? And how do you do it in a way that's somewhat consistent, but yet isn't so consistent that it's draconian and everybody has to march to the same thing when not everybody's needs are the same. You know, it's getting that balance, right, of making sure that we have oversight, making sure that we hold people accountable, but yet giving them enough flexibility to meet people where they are, I think is going to be like some of our biggest efforts this next year. Again, our secretary, Mr. Mayorkas, he is in, very much engaged in this. I have the opportunity to talk to him several times about all of these different efforts. And it's been tremendous over my last six years here at DHS, the amount of support that I've had from leadership, because leadership does matter. And sometimes we forget that. And I don't think that our programs and what we've been able to do as an agency would not be possible without our leadership, that we've consistently had good leadership really for these last, at least the last six years that that I've been here. And I think that that's, that's just a really hugely important element of our overall
1: success. Angie Bailey, DHS Chief Human Capital Officer, speaking with Federal News Network's Nicola Grisco. There's more to the interview. Find it in its entirety at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Still to come, a procurement strategy known as category management might be stifling small business. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin, here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network.
3: Welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. I'm thrilled today to be joined by Rick Wade, Senior Vice President of Strategic Alliances and Outreach at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Previously, Rick was a Senior Advisor and Deputy Chief of Staff to Secretary of Commerce Gary Locke. He worked closely with the Obama Administration, and he also worked with Commerce's Economic Development Administration to foster regional economic development in distressed areas and with the Minority Business Development Agency to create jobs through the growth of minority-owned businesses. He received a B.S. from the University of South Carolina and an M.P.A. from Harvard University. Rick, welcome, and thanks so much for joining me.
4: And hey, thank you so much for having me. look forward to the conversation.
3: Rick, in today's environment, leaders have had to adapt and find new ways to lead with transparency and empathy. But can you tell us a little bit about
4: uh, in America and certainly within me uh, about the importance of being empathetic uh, in, uh, in, in the way I lead, to be inclusive, uh, to, be, uh, uh, to, to lead in a way uh, in which you're very sensitive to the impact of your decisions uh, on, those, on others uh, across our community. So it certainly has been a challenging year uh, to adapt, uh, but I'm happy to say that uh, I'm still here and we're moving forward.
3: <laughs> Perfect.
4: that I have, uh, my willingness to, to fight for change. And that was that was the beginning. I think that set the foundation of how I lead. And there have been so many other moments. Uh, one of the most defining moments for me personally was uh, the, 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 the massacre at Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston, South Carolina, a very close friend of mine, Senator Reverend Clemente Pinckney, who lost his life. and And it conjured up, again, these issues of how deep the divide in terms of race in america is and but it also inspired me to lead even more and to lead harder and to lead with diligence and vigilance uh to help close that divide so there have been so many defining moments uh, uh in my career I, I will tell you even uh after the murder of george floyd and my role at the u.s Ch- chamber of commerce uh to galvanize the business community uh inspired by that tragedy
3: It's fantastic. It's a great, great answer. Many stories. Thank you very much for sharing that. Um, who is the most impactful leader in your life? And what quality did you admire about them?
4: You know, I, again, I, I can't say that I had, I had just one, but I would tell you the one person who uh, who had, whose historical leadership has inspired me the most, and that is the leadership of Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr., and there's so many attributes there that are consistent with my values. But the one the one part of his leadership was vision. And I, I mean, the idea that you can have a dream, which we often define and think of his big, I have a dream speech. But I think that's a really important attribute of leadership, Shane, that you can sort of see beyond the challenges of today and see a better future for people and for yourself. So that the idea that leaders have vision uh, despite the challenges. It's seeing a forest despite the trees. It's seeing an opportunity despite the barriers. And that, that attribute I think is one that, that I embody. I mean, I, I, I'm very optimistic uh, despite the challenges, despite the circumstances. So the whole notion of vision uh, was a very important attribute that I, I learned and that I've tried to emulate from the leadership of
3: Dr. King. Wow, fantastic. And as someone who's got an extensive background in federal service uh, and out of federal service, what advice would you give to feds looking to develop leadership skills? And, and you can talk about mid-career, senior career, early career. Um, what comes to mind there?
4: Yeah, listen, I mean, you're aware that I had the, the fortunate opportunity. We didn't have a secretary of commerce when uh, President Obama, uh, of course, I served as one of his senior advisors, was inaugurated. And the president asked me to go to the Department of Commerce to hold the fort down. And that was one of the most exciting experiences in my entire career. Not just for the title and and the wonderful experiences, but I understood the value of federal employees. And and folks forget sometimes, Shane, that we political appointees, we come and go. But the folks who, who are grinding every day, who are at their desk no matter rain, sleet, or snow,
3: And thank you very much for sharing that with us today.
4: Well, thank you for the opportunity. Thank you.
3: I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Thank you for listening to today's Lessons in Leadership podcast. And until we see you next time,
5: take good care. As fall fills up with activities and obligations, even a small time saver can feel like a big help. Grammarly is an all-in-one writing tool that makes clear, concise communication easier than ever, so you can finish your work earlier